If you would please and open them to Galatians chapter 1. And I'm still kind of getting used to tell you where to turn to on Wednesday evenings. If I say 1 John instead of Galatians or John instead of Paul, forgive me for that because I just haven't got quite oriented just right the way I want to be. But we're studying here the opening verses of this letter. And I think in the two messages that we've already had, you're, you're probably getting a feel or getting the picture here about how this letter is going to be just jam-packed with very good doctrinal information. And if you want to know the doctrines that underlie the Christian faith, especially the primary doctrine here of justification, this is a really good place for you to go uh, to find this out. Uh, One of the solas of the Reformation was sole fide, that means faith alone. And this is the main doctrine that's taught here in this epistle, that we are saved by faith alone without any meritorious works. And that was a, a very important doctrine during the Reformation because the Reformers were struggling against an entrenched Roman Catholic system. And the Roman Catholics, of course, were teaching that salvation is obtained by faith plus whatever that they decide they might want to add to it. And Paul, of course, was not facing Catholicism because there was no such thing in that time. In fact, uh, the only one who would have been more surprised to find out that he was a pope than Peter would have been Paul. And uh, there were no popes at that time. Um, and uh, the Roman Catholic Church didn't get started till much later. And Paul and Peter, neither one, knew anything about this huge monstrosity that we call Roman Catholicism today. But nonetheless, Paul did face people who had similar views of justification as the Roman Catholics have today. And these were the Judaizers. These were uh, Jews that insisted that circumcision must be a part of justifying faith and that it's faith plus circumcision for salvation, which of course is nothing less than a precursor for that for faith plus sacraments for salvation. And that's why Martin Luther was able to take the book of Galatians and Romans as a tool for dismantling Roman Catholic works theology. And he started with the sale of indulgences and then he sort of worked his way backwards towards uh, this doctrine of justification by faith alone, saying that there are no works that can assist in our salvation, much less that there would be works that could be pardoned by or sins that could be pardoned by uh, purchasing merits so that's this is a theological background that we have in this book uh, and the chief doctrine of the christian faith is what's taught here that we are saved by grace and we're justified by faith alone in the atoning work of christ on the cross now if you look at our text tonight galatians chapter one beginning with verse number one Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our subject tonight, once again, is defense of apostleship. And that is the theme of the opening verses of this chapter. Uh, Paul was the 
author, of course, of Galatians, and some have described Galatians as his most explosive letter, and that's because in the very beginning, he charges right out of the gate to attack a heresy that was growing among the Galatian churches. I mentioned just a moment ago the Judaizers. Those were people that were subverting the gospel of Christ. They insisted that Gentiles must be circumcised, and uh, that's according, of course, to the old Mosaic law. And Paul often confronted those types of people because everywhere he went, preaching in the Roman provinces, he was always going into Jewish synagogues. That's the place that he chose to go first to present the gospel. And uh, he would go there and uh, preach to them, and there was always that opposition. Paul organized these churches in Galatia during his first missionary journey, and it seems like that these Judaizers were just sort of following the route that Paul took And there they were infiltrating those churches with this idea of circumcision. And what they were also doing was challenging Paul's apostleship. They claimed that he wasn't a true apostle of Christ, and therefore his teachings were suspect at best, and at worst they were heretical. So Paul just jumps into this, in this epistle just hot and heavy, pursuing this, And as we study through the letter, we're going to find this theme coming up over and over again of Paul talking about his apostleship. Now, last week, as we discussed this, we talked about Paul's attitude in the defense. And his attitude is one of anxiousness to defend his apostleship against all these objections that have been made against him. And he doesn't enumerate those objections. I mean, he doesn't list point one, two, three. Here's what they're saying about me. But as we read this, we see how his arguments develop and we can surmise what they must have been saying. And one of the things that they were saying is that Paul was not a part of the original 12 apostles. He wasn't part of that group of apostles that Jesus chose and sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him. And then secondly, he didn't meet the qualifications of one chosen afterwards to be an apostle. And we have that example in the book of Acts chapter 1. Uh, he was, uh, the qualifications given there would have been that he, was, he had to be there with the others at the time that Jesus was baptized. Uh, he had to have been baptized by John the Baptist. He would have to have firsthand, uh, a firsthand witness or was a firsthand witness of the resurrection of Christ being right there at the time that he arose. And Paul could meet none of those qualifications. Then we talked, secondly, about Paul's authority in the defense. And I didn't get to finish this part, which I will do in just a few minutes, but we saw last week how that Paul was chosen by God before he was born. And we see that by reading verses 15 and 16 in the first chapter, that God had a plan that Paul would be the apostle to the heathens. That means that he would go and preach to Gentiles. Now, you here, uh, all of us here, are heathens. Did you know that? I mean, if we lived in the Bible times, that's how the Bible would term us. The Jews were the chosen people of God, but everybody else is a heathen. And so we're, we're converted heathens in here tonight. And that's a term that I've resurrected from time to time to refer to my children when they were growing up. But uh, we're, we're, we're the heathens in this story. Now, as you can imagine, this, this statement that Paul was chosen before he was born led us into discussion of of God's sovereign election. And this is just another one of those ways where we see this great Bible doctrine is woven throughout Scripture. It's really hard to escape this because it's so integral to the salvation of God's people. But Paul was chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and in that respect, he is differentiated from the rest of the apostles. 
Now, the rest of the apostles are apostles to the Jews, which, of course, doesn't mean they couldn't preach to Gentiles. It was Peter who was the first to take the gospel to Gentiles, and that's when he went to preach to Cornelius. And when he preached to him, that was the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Gentile people. But Paul is the apostle chosen specifically for this task. He was born to be an apostle to the Gentile people. And so what he did was to spend his life after his conversion, traveling around the Roman Empire, and and he was preaching to Gentiles. And he didn't exclude Jews. I just mentioned that a moment ago. First place he went was to the Jewish synagogues, and they were present in almost all of these cities. He would start there, but most of his converts were Gentile people because that's the primary population group in the Roman Empire. Then we talk next about how Paul was called directly by Christ. And the first verse tells us this, Paul an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul was not chosen as an apostle in the same way that Matthias was that I talked about in Acts chapter 1. There There you have God, that is a Holy Spirit-led choice. I have no doubt about that. But in that passage, you have human instrumentality. The rest of the apostles are the human instruments in the choosing of Matthias. But Paul very clearly says, I was not chosen by men, but I was called directly by Christ. Now, that's where we left off the last time. And so I want to take a moment tonight here to begin with to talk about Paul's calling. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 26... Uh, This is the story of Paul's conversion, and I've chosen to read it from this chapter because this is the shortened version of it. This is where Paul appears before King Agrippa and explains to him the calling that he'd received. And the event of Paul's calling, I hope you know, actually occurs in Acts chapter 9. And then Paul repeats that in Acts chapter 22, and that was when he... Uh, addressed the crowd at the temple just before he was taken as a prisoner and shipped off to Caesarea where he spent a couple of years. Now, if you'll look here at chapter 26, we're going to break into this conversation where Paul is speaking to Agrippa in verse number 12. And Paul has already told Agrippa that he persecuted Christians and he had received authority to pursue them to places beyond the borders of Israel. And so he says in verse number 12, as he's relating the story, he says, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by the faith that is in me. So here then is that direct call, as Paul relates it. It's a 
called by Jesus. And so then, at this time, he was commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And that authority that he received was a direct authority. Now, going back to our text in Galatians, you'll notice there that Paul says that he's an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And there's a statement that links the authority of Jesus Christ with that of God the Father, and that statement implies equality between the two. And then mentioning the resurrection uh, speaks of the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work and that his death on the cross satisfied God for sin. Christ is a full satisfaction for sin. And that's going to be a very important statement as we get later into the arguments of justification by faith alone. But going back to that important point that's made here, Paul has the full authority of the Godhead behind him. He's this special designee of God. He has full authority of God behind him to preach to the Gentiles and this calling as an apostle. So he has the authority then to impose a doctrinal standard upon the people. He has that right to address this issue of circumcision because he's speaking under the inspiration of God. Now, you would think that that's a settled question. But here we have Paul's defense in Galatians. Then we have 2,000 years of church history behind us, and we have all of this time to consider this and to think about what Paul has said. So it ought to be a settled question that Paul has the authority in what Paul says is right. But it's not a settled question because there are many, or in the minds of some, it's not, because there are many commentators and others that think that Paul is actually wrong some of the time. And I'm not talking about rank heretics here. I'm not talking about people that just love to attack Christianity and try to tear it down. But I'm talking about people who otherwise you would consider to be pretty good Orthodox people. They're seminary professors and college professors and scholars. And they say that Paul had certain influences on him. That with his rabbinical background, having been raised and taught, uh, tutored by Gamaliel, who is a famous uh, rabbi at the time of the Apostle Paul, that what Paul would do is he would draw on this Jewish background that he had, and all of that colored the different things that he said. And so he would often say things that were just simply wrong. Well, that doesn't jibe with the Scripture, because Paul's point here is to prove the calling. His point here is to prove that he has authority just like the rest of the apostles had authority so that when he spoke, he spoke the words of God. You know, sometimes we think that, uh, tend to think that the important words in the Bible are the ones that you see in red. Those are the ones you pay attention to and maybe not so much to all those that are written in black. Well, all of the Bible is the word of God. And we'd be much better off not even to have red-letter Bibles if we ever got to the opinion that what uh, is said in the rest of the Bible is not as important as what Jesus said because the whole book is inspired by God. So it's not demeaning to Jesus to say that Paul had authority or that Paul spoke Scripture. That doesn't make Paul the man equal to Jesus. It just, it's just that when it comes to the Word what Paul wrote is truth. He, he wrote under inspiration of God, and so that means he's writing the very words of God. So we don't have a conflict here. What Paul says complements Jesus, and he, it complements the words of Jesus. It's further expansion of those things that Jesus taught. So this is God speaking through man, expanding upon the message of Jesus. So it's not a change, it's not a conflict, but it's actually God commenting on God. 
And then thirdly, we would notice this, that Paul was confirmed by the apostles. And that wasn't a necessity to his calling. We've already stated that. But it was nonetheless true that the rest of the apostles recognized Paul's authority. And they recognized that he received that authority directly from Christ. It certainly wouldn't be advantageous for the apostles to be in an argument over this about who has authority and who doesn't and who speaks for God and who doesn't and who has, who has authority of doctrine and who doesn't. Now in the second verse, Paul says, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. And I don't think he's there he's referring specifically to the apostles, but there he's speaking about fellow ministers, others that travel with him. Perhaps he's even speaking of the church at Antioch that he came from and there were good, solid Christian people that were there. They, they helped to send Paul out. They were people of the faith and they recognized Paul's aptitude and, and they recognized Paul's calling. They were convinced of that. But if these people are worried about Paul's authority and he claimed to be equal with the apostles, then if they trusted the apostles, then you would think, that they would want their authority to weigh in on this. So if the issue is, has he been called by God? Well, do they trust that the 12 have been called by God? I think certainly they would. Otherwise, their argument is bogus. It has no effect. So they're going to accept the calling of the 12 apostles. So certainly, you'd want them to weigh in on this and see what their opinion is of the apostle Paul. Is he called by God? Is what he said the words of God? Now, I'm not going to do this, but you can do it later. You can go to Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 15 and read those chapters, and you'll see how the Apostle Paul mixed in with the other apostles. I'm not going to go there, but I want to take you to another important scripture that should end the dispute of Paul's authority altogether. And this is what Peter said concerning Paul in Second Peter chapter 3. And there, starting in verse number 14, Peter says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Now there he's talking about the coming of Christ, talking about the end of the world, the destruction of the world when Christ comes. And he goes on and he says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation... Even as our beloved brother Paul, according also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do the other scriptures under their own destruction. So there, Peter affirms that God had given Paul the authority to write what he wrote, He says what Paul wrote was scripture. And so anyone who claims that they can correct Paul, that they can change something that he said and make it right, well, that's an argument they can't win. In fact, that's one I think they're going to stand and give an account to God for making. Now let's move on then to the third area of discussion. And thirdly is Paul's affirmation in the defense. Verse 3 says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now how often in our studies have we noted this that Paul is the apostle of grace? 
And it's not that the others were not men of grace, but it's Paul who has a main theme, especially in the books of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, about God's grace. I mean, there are extensive sections about God's grace in, the, in these books. And the argument of this epistle is going to come down to this all-important question, is salvation by God's grace, or is there some way that man merits a part or the whole of his salvation? And unless you think that justification, well, that's a complete separate issue from grace, well, let's just look for a moment at chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And we don't want to get all excited there about verse number 4 and think that we found a verse here that says that you can lose your salvation. Paul says you're fallen from grace. And what he means there is that you have abandoned the principle of grace salvation whenever you seek to be justified by the law. And so this question about salvation by grace through faith alone is the question Paul will answer in this letter. Now let's let's start here to break these verses down. I mean, there's really some good doctrine here and there's some important doctrine that I'm not going to be able to finish tonight Uh, Paul is the apostle of grace and we're going to see Paul talking about grace quite a bit through these verses so let's get a start on this and uh, we're 20 minutes to 8 so I'll probably finish a little bit early tonight and leave the bulk of this third point for our next lesson so I want to look at tonight Uh, begin with this the cause and effect of salvation the cause and effect of salvation Paul says grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ now there I want you to notice again the coupling together of Jesus Christ and God the Father I have ten toes and I have ten fingers and I have trouble counting all of the times in Scripture that affirms the deity of Jesus Christ and how many times we find the equality of Godhead in Scripture. Salvation is by the grace of God. And there's no splitting that out so that you say, well, there's one type of grace that comes from Christ, there's another type of grace that comes from the Father, and the grace that comes from Christ is a lesser grace from that you receive from God the Father, a better quality grace. God the Father has a better quality grace. And I think you do have some of that in some people's thinkings, like thinking like in the uh, Roman Catholic system that encourages prayers to dead saints, prayers to angels, and prayers to Mary. And they think the saints, the angels, and Mary have some sort of assisting power uh, that helps them to get to God. And, And how do they address Mary? If you're former Roman Catholic you know this they say hail Mary full of grace and so they think there's some assistance there that either angels dead saints or whatever they can appeal to Jesus and appeal to the father but in the case of the angels and the saints their their grace is not quite yet up to the level of God the father and of Jesus Christ but in the case of Mary that's something different because they think there's a special dispensing of grace from her that kind of tops all of the rest. Now, if you ever have a chance to to read a very interesting book, you ought to read 50 Years in the Church of Rome. And that is a a story about life in the Roman Catholic Church. And it was written by a man who was raised in Roman Catholicism and became a priest. And his story takes place in the early to the middle 19th century. 
And you'll read there about how this man, when he was growing up, how he was taught about confession as a child, how he was taught about the intercession of Mary. And uh, he wrote this book, and it's, it's had some very, very interesting, well, most of it is really, really interesting. But I want to read to you uh, his account here of how the priest talked to him and to the other children to first start teaching them about confession. And this is when he was very young. And it starts out here with the priest talking to these children. And the priest says to them, You have a father and a mother in heaven, dear children. Your father is Jesus and your mother is Mary. Do not forget that a mother's heart is always more tender and more prone to mercy than that of a father. Often you offend your father by your sins. You make him angry against you. What takes place in heaven then? Your father in heaven takes his rod to punish you. He threatens to crush you down with his roaring thunder. He opens the gates of hell to cast you into it. And you would have been damned long ago had it not been for the loving mother whom you have in heaven who has disarmed your angry and irritated father. When Jesus would punish you as you deserve, the good virgin Mary hastens to him and pacifies him. She places herself between him and you and prevents him from smiting you. She speaks in your favor. She asks for your pardon and she obtains it. And then he goes on here and refers to the man who, who wrote this, this account. Uh, he's a child, and he refers to him. He says, also, as young Chenike has told you, he often threw himself into the arms of his mother to escape punishment. She took his part and pleaded so well that his father yielded and put away the rod. Thus, my children, when your conscience tells you that you are guilty, that Jesus is angry against you, and that you have good reason to fear hell, hasten to Mary. Throw yourselves into the arms of that good mother. Have recourse, listen, have recourse to her sovereign power over Jesus and be assured that you will be saved through her. And then the priest, the, the writer rather of this, of this account says, it is thus that the Pope and the priest of Rome have entirely disfigured and changed the holy religion of the gospel. In the church of Rome, it is not Jesus, but Mary, who represents the infinite love and mercy of God for the sinner. The sinner is not advised or directed to place his hope in Jesus, but in Mary, for his escape from deserved chastisement. It is not Jesus, but Mary, who saves the sinner. Jesus is always bent on punishing sinners. sinners. Mary is always merciful to them. The church of Rome has thus fallen into idolatry. She rather trusts in Mary than in Jesus. She constantly invites sinners to turn their thoughts, their hopes, their affections, not to Jesus, but to Mary. By means of that impious doctrine, Rome deceives the intellects, seduces the hearts, and destroys the souls of the young forever. Under the pretext of honoring the Virgin Mary, she insults her by outraging and misrepresenting her adorable son. Now, I hope that you've noticed, as you've read the Bible that the Apostle Paul never says anything about Mary in the salvation of sinners. His argument is not about a special dispensing grace that comes from some other source, depending upon who you decide to pray to. Now, that might be a little bit off the subject, but it shows you how much confusion there is over the grace of God. So God is the one who is the cause of salvation, and his display of grace is his favor towards the sinner. And his grace is that willingness of God to do something for the sinner when we can't do anything for ourselves. And so it's that showering down of his love and his mercy upon us when we deserve nothing but God's 
pure justice and his punishment. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that aspect next time as we talk about the atonement. But there is no difference between the grace of the Father and the grace of the Son. And the atonement was not the idea of one and not of the other. God's grace is magnificently displayed in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Well, we have to note this first, and this is always the order that we find in the New Testament, that we are given the grace of God, that's the cause of salvation, and then the effect of God's grace is that moving us into faith in Christ, and we also receive the blessing of that effect. And the blessing that we receive is peace. Well, why is there peace? Well, we trace that to the activity of God in justifying us from our sins. We trace that to the fact that believers have been justified, that we no longer bear the weight of the punishment and the condemnation of sin. So what Paul says in Romans, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're talking here about what Christ has done in the atonement. Now, in the atonement, uh, the atonement, the word originally meant reconciliation now that term has been broadened out some to some to embrace a larger larger doctrine of the satisfaction of christ to the justice of god and and uh, to the wrath of god for dying for our sins he satisfies and appeases god's wrath but if we continue to think of atonement which also includes this part of it the reconciliation if we continue to think of it in terms of reconciliation it means that the hostility between us and God has ended that Jesus has taken care of that so that now we have peace with God and because now that we have peace with God we also have the peace of God and the peace of God is that calmness and the assurance that God is true to his word that when he says when you believe that he promises to witness with our spirit that we are his children. He gives us the Holy Spirit to tell us that we belong to him and that we are safe and secure from his wrath forever. And all of that's going to come out as we, as we look at the doctrine of justification. So how do we obtain that peace? Well, I would, I would think that Paul would maintain that you would never find it if you believe that you can be justified by the law. If you're looking to the law for justification, the only thing that you're going to get is to be continually condemned by the law. And the next infraction that you commit is the one that you need to worry about because that's the one that can send you to hell. And that's why in the Roman Catholic system, you'll never find any assurance. You never find assurance of final salvation in this life. They'll never promise you that salvation is guaranteed. They'll never say to you, like Jesus said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because all that they can ever do is just to offer you penance. They may give you another sacrament to, to practice or to do. And what they do is they promise purgatory at best. They can't promise paradise. And that's the result of a legalistic system. See, if justification is not by faith alone, then it means that there's something left for you to do that you're going to have to make up and pay for some of the sins that you've committed. And my question is, how do you even count those? How do you keep track of all the sin that you committed every day? How do you know for sure that you've covered them all through the acts of penance that somebody gives you to do? And that's why there is no Roman Catholic that ever lives or dies in peace. But I know that I can, and I know that you can. If you know Christ, you'll die in peace. 
And so here's what happens if you miss this foundational doctrine of justification by faith alone. You have missed grace, and you've missed peace, you've missed assurance, you've missed hope, and most importantly, you completely miss salvation. Does any wonder that Martin Luther read the book of Galatians, he loved it so much because when he got this truth down, when he finally understood this coming out of that Roman Catholic system, he felt this, this unbearable weight had been removed from his shoulders. And he affirmed this cause and effect of salvation that we have received the grace of God and because we have, we now have the peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hold on to those thoughts because that's what we're going to come back to next time as we look at verse number 4. And verse number 4, folks, there are a thousand sermons that could be preached from verse number 4, and I'm only going to preach about 800 of them. So, um, no, I'm going to preach, uh, try to hold it to, you know, maybe one or two more on on verse number 4. And next time, we're going to look just very briefly at one aspect of the atonement. And this is part of the doctrines of grace. And that's really a good subject for our lesson next week. Next week, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to come together. And we look at these tremendous doctrines that are found in your word. And, and these are things that we really need to know because it just firms up our faith in Christ, it, it, it helps us to understand why that we could never lose salvation. It helps us to understand why everything is in your control rather than ours. There is no hope for us if our justification comes from things that we do because we could just simply never be good enough. So we thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world and that he lived that perfect life and that he died and through faith in him, his righteousness is transferred to our account so that we can stand before you justified and on our way to heaven. We thank you, Lord, for that. And we thank you for the peace in our hearts that this wonderful doctrine produces. Bless our people. Help us to understand your word better every time that we hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.